Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my partner, Jason Potter. As you know, Surety Today is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and it's designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. We really are looking to build up uh, the social media platforms for Surety Today. If you miss a presentation, um, you can call, you can um, catch up on those presentations and, in fact, all prior presentations on our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com as well as podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. And I understand we're on something called Stitcher as well. I think that's for the younger crowd. Uh, our microsite at suretytoday.net also has all the prior uh, papers and, and recordings. So if you have any um, suggestions for future topics or improvements, please let us know. We, of course, have uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. One uh, important housekeeping note that I want everyone to be aware of is that the next surety today in May will have a new 800 number and a new access code to call in with. We're, we're changing our providers. Uh, fortunately, you'll be able to use the same PIN number. Uh, we're also working on, on when we send out our notices in the emails, we're, we're working on including your specific PIN number with, with the email. So, Look for our, our notices coming out uh, throughout the month on the change and the new new numbers to call. So today we're providing a surety case law update. Our last case law update was February 12, 2018. Jason and I have gone back uh, to about May or so of 2018 and looked at all the case summaries prepared by the SFAA and up to the present, and we've selected several cases of interest to discuss with you today. Of course, we're limited by time and the number of cases we can talk about, and we also weed out the cases that are more procedural in nature or that turn on trial or burden of proof issues, as those are more, you know, germane to outside counsel. We try to focus on cases that have some practical use and application for the claims handler. Uh, Jason and I each went through the entire list separately, and then we sat down and discussed, uh, you know, which ones we thought were interesting, and decided which ones we we try to discuss today. So we're gonna we're gonna discuss cases dealing with a variety of issues: a waiver of Miller Act rights, whether a bond's a contract, uh, to which bonds collateral apply, the common obligee theory, et cetera. So without further ado, let's get started. Jason, why don't you kick us off? Thanks, Mike. So the first case I'd like to discuss is Developer Surety and Indemnity Company versus Archer Western Contractors, LLC. It's a May 2018 case out of the Middle District of Florida, Orlando Division, um, and it was a ruling on the party's cross motions for summary judgment. In that case, Archer Western Contractors, LLC, contracted with the Florida Department of Transportation on the Central Florida Commuter Rail Transit Station <laughs> Finishes Project. Uh, the contract was in February of 2012. In May of that year, Archer subcontracted with a company called Prince Land Services, Inc. 
to perform landscaping and irrigation work on the project. And developers bonded Prince's subcontract obligations. Archer ultimately default terminated Prince and notified developers and made a claim on the performance bond. Developers responded that the claim lacked sufficient information for it to respond meaningfully, but that it would begin a preliminary investigation. Now, developers also requested uh, that Archer provide additional documenta documentation to further substantiate the claim. Um, the case indicates that um, everything went black. The parties had no further communications for months. Some three or four months later, developers learned that Archer had hired a completion contractor, uh, a company called Lafleur Nurseries and Garden Center, to complete the scope of work uh, of Prince. After it learned of the completion contract, developers, understandably, denied Archer's performance bond claim. In denying the claim, developers indicated that Archer, the obligee, never provided sufficient documentation to substantiate its claim, and that Archer had unilaterally replaced the bond principal uh, with the completion contractor, and it didn't give de developers the chance to mitigate the damages or choose for a completion option. The completion contractor, Lafleur, ultimately completed the job. Archer turned to developers and demanded more than $630,000 in completion costs. Developers filed a declaratory judgment action, and it argued that Archer had breached the terms of the performance bond by unilaterally completing it without giving developers the right to do so. Developers also argued that it never had any obligation to Archer because as the obligee, Archer failed to respond to developers' requests for additional documentation. Therefore, developers, developers claimed that it was unable to substantiate the claim and that the refusal to provide information breached the party's duties of good faith and fair dealing. Now, unfortunately for the good guys, developers lost. Uh, based upon the terms of the bond, which incorporated the party's subcontract by reference. Now, the bond provided that upon a declaration of default, the surety had 15 days to take one of four actions, complete, obtain bids from other completion contractors and tender that completion contractor to the obligee, tender the penal sum, or deny liability. Now, Archer argued that it provided notice of the default to the surety and it never received anything in response other than the surety's letter indicating that the claim lacks substantiation. After the 15-day time period, uh, it retained Lafleur, the completion contractor, to complete. Developers cited an 11th Circuit case, IFIC versus Americaribel, Moriarty, JV, 681 Federal Appendix 771 from 2017 in which the 11th Circuit held that the obligee's immediate hiring of a completion contractor after termination, quote, thwarted, end quote, the surety's liability to choose for completion options. Uh, despite the argument, the court rejected that precedent, however. It held here that Archer didn't hire the completion contractor until after the bond's 15-day period had expired. The facts here indicate that Essentially, the, the um, obligee did everything 
but formally retain that completion contractor during that time period, however. The parties were in pre-contract negotiations. They discussed scope of work, uh, and the and developers pointed to this as um, as evidence of the intentions to to thwart the surety. Ultimately, however, the court rejected that argument and held that there could could have been no no thwarting here because the surety didn't even know about the completion contract until some three or four months later. Finally, with respect to developers' argument that the obligee had breached the bond by not supplying sufficient information, the court simply said the bond didn't require it. The bond simply required a notice of default from the obligee to the surety, and that's it. And when the surety took no further action within the 15-day time period, the obligee was within its rights to hire that completion contractor, and developers had to foot the bill for the completion costs. Now, it doesn't discuss the bond. I, I think it was an A312, uh, but, it, but it wasn't um, expressly set out. It doesn't say, obviously, what version it was. Obviously, the takeaway here, as, as it often is, is to clearly read, read the bond, RTFB, read the friendly bond to understand the party's rights and obligations, particularly when, the, when there's a, a short time frame such as 15 days within, within which to take that action. Now, I know we're short on, on time. I'll turn it back to Mike to discuss the next case. Thanks, Jason. My takeaway is that that's a stupid decision. <laughs> but, you know, others will have different takeaways, I'm sure. So the first case that I'd like to discuss explores the issue of waiver under the Miller Act. Uh, it's the case of United States of America for the use and benefit of McCulloch Plumbing uh, versus Halbert Construction Company uh, out of the Southern District of California. Western Surety issued payment and performance bonds on a Miller Act project for Halbert Construction uh, for the construction of a dining facility for the Corps of Engineers. The, uh, the plumbing subcontractor on the project claimed that it had not been paid in full for the work um, and that, um, uh, that there were change orders that hadn't been addressed and that it had damages caused by delay, including extended overhead and, and personnel costs. The surety and the principal both moved for summary judgment with respect to the alleged delay damages, asserting that the no damage for delay clause in the subcontract barred the claim. The claimant argued that the no damage for delay clause was void under the Miller Act. The court noted that the law was rapidly evolving with respect to the surety's ability to rely on a no damage for delay clause and that courts were divided. But starting its analysis, the court observed that the issue was controlled by the Miller Act and not state law. The court then stated that the liability of a surety and its principal on a Miller Act payment bond is coextensive with the contractual liability of the principal, but only to the extent that that liability is consistent with the rights and obligations created under the Miller Act. So basically, the court was saying that, you know, if the no damage for delay clause is void under the Miller Act, it's irrelevant if such a clause would be enforceable under state law. The court noted the remedial nature of the Miller Act and its purpose to protect those supplying labor and materials on federal projects. Uh, and the court also pointed out that in 1999, the Congress uh, amended the Miller Act to include a provision specifying the requirements for a waiver of the Miller Act. And under that provision, a waiver uh, of a right to bring an action on a payment bond um, would be void unless it's in writing, signed by the person whose right is waived, and the waiver is executed after the person whose right is waived has furnished the labor material for use in the performance of the contract. And, of course, with these subcontract provisions where you've got no damage for delay clauses, those are signed when the contract's initially 
entered into and not after the work is done. So the principal and the surety argued that the no damage for delay clause only addressed the measure of the claimant's recovery and not the timing of the recovery, and that the claimant's recovery for delays was, a time ex was, was entitled to time extensions. The court noted that other courts had rejected such arguments and held that no damage for delay clause was in effect an implied waiver of the Miller Act that did not comply with the requirements for a waiver under the Act. As noted, there's a split among the courts. Many courts have addressed the issue uh, of no damage for delay clauses and have made the distinction between clauses that affect the timing of recovery and the measure of recovery, as the, uh, as the surety argued in this case. And these courts have held that such clauses only affect the measure of recovery and not timing, and as such were not contradictory to the Miller Act. And I've got a couple cases that are cited in the paper that we'll, we'll post on the website uh, later that take that position. One of the courts is the Morganti National Inc. versus Petrie Mechanical. Um, in that case, the court observed that the no damage for delay clause is one that affects the measure of damages, i.e., whether there is any liability for monetary damages. It simply delineates the extent of the general contractor's liability or in the context of the Miller Act, what sums are justly due to the subcontractor. Accordingly, the no damage for delay clause just as much defines the liability of the surety as it does the liability of the bond principal, and so both parties are entitled to raise this clause in their defense. So the takeaway from this case is that the surety may not be able to rely on all of the underlying contractual defenses in the bonded contract if those defenses conflict with the requirements of the Miller Act such that they constitute an imper impermissible waiver. And you'll see that there are cases that take the same approach to the um, pay when paid, pay if paid clause uh, in, in contracts, as well as contracts that talk about, you know, well, you have to exhaust all the administrative remedies and all of that. There have been courts that have held that those are Im implied waivers of the Miller Act as well. So just be aware of that. Jason, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, the next case I'd like to discuss is Associated Construction slash AP Construction LLC versus Hanover Insurance. It comes out of the Federal District Court in Connecticut uh, from August of 2018. Uh, it deals in part with the surety's liability for the actions of the agent, the bonding agent. Now, Associated Construction slash AP Construction LLC entered into a GMP, a, a Guaranteed Maximum Price Contract, to build uh, a residential apartment complex in Stamford, Connecticut. It subcontracted the framing and drywall to a company called Intext Building Systems, Inc. It agreed to do the framing, drywall, and sheet metal work for $4.5 million. Associated enter, entered into three subcontracts with Intext, $1.9 million for the framing, $1.8 million for the drywall, and about $640,000 for the materials. Associated required Intext to obtain payment and performance bonds for the work, uh, apparently, Intext uh, had never didn't have a bonding agent contact, didn't know where to get uh, bonds. So, Associated, uh, the ultimate obligee, introduced Intext to a bonding agent. Now, if you believe the obligee, which we obviously never do, the agent informed the obligee that while it did not have the surety's authority to issue one bond in the total penal sum of $4.5 million dollars, the agent could split up the bonds among the three subcontracts, but that the total aggregate of those three 
would be $4.5 million. So that the three bonds would, in the obligee's words, quote, operate as one bond, end quote. The agent issued the three bonds, each in the penal sum of those three subcontracts, 1.9, 1.8, and 642,000. As often happens, Intex got into trouble, was unable to complete, and the obligee was uh, called upon the surety to complete. The surety conducted an investigation and it allocated the completion costs across those three bonds that I just mentioned. It then reached an agreement with the obligee associated to pay the bond's penal sums toward those completion costs. They had an agreement, but um, the case isn't clear as to what happened, but somehow the agreement fell through, um, and the obligee argued that the three bonds should be treated as one bond with a total penal sum of $4.5 million. Uh, clearly, the obligee incurred substantial completion costs, on one of those three subcontracts that far exceeded the, the bond's penal sum, but it's not the, the case isn't clear about which contract or what exactly happened, only that um, the obligee sought to have those three bonds treated um, as one bond with a penal sum collectively of $4.5 million. The argument obviously seems a little crazy to a, uh, and certainly counterintuitive to a surety claims professional, particularly in this circumstance. Uh, each bond referenced a separate subcontract that had a separate subcontract number, and each bond contained a separate penal sum in the amount of that subcontract. So it seems counterintuitive that each of those three bonds, collectively those three bonds, would, uh, would be aggregated. However, and, and this is where the acts of the agent are important, the obligee indicated that numerous times this particular agent represented and promised to the obligee that these bonds would be treated as one. The obligee said that um, but for these, these representations, it would have never awarded the contract to Intext. So it relied upon those misrepresentations by the agent. Now, I, I discussed in the, in the prior case the, the RTFB maxim, read the friendly bond, and it comes to mind again here. The court held that regardless of what the agent may have said, the bonds say what the bonds say. So the alleged misrepresentations by the bonding agent can't change that. The court relied on something called the parole evidence rule, and that's a rule uh, that is applied to interpreting contracts that says verbal uh, misrepresentations prior to a written contract are not admissible to change the terms of that written contract, and that, and that makes sense because otherwise, um, you would incorporate those verbal written uh, those those verbal uh, representations into the ultimate written contract. Unfortunately, the surety did not completely escape. Uh, the court refused to construe all of the court refused to construe all three bonds as it, as one. It did hold that if the agent did misrepresent things to the obligee, then the surety could potentially be liable for those misrepresentations. And we we selected this case because we see increasingly throughout the country, and particularly here in Maryland, uh, where obligees try to hold the surety liable for the acts or misrepresentations, in this case, uh, of the agent. Um, so th the point simply is don't forget about the agent. If, uh, if the surety or the, the claims agent um, believes that there may have been representations from the bonding agent, uh, particularly with the obligee, 
uh, maybe a good idea to find out what those representations, what those discussions were, particularly where there's a claim later on in the bond. Mike? Okay, thanks, Chase. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit two cases at the same time here because uh, they kind of both go in opposite directions on on, on pretty much the same issue. Uh, so the cases I'll discuss deal with the issue of whether a surety can sue the obligee on a bond for breach of contract. Of course, we've all heard repeatedly that a bond is a contract and that it's a tripartite agreement between the surety, the principal, and the obligee. But can an obligee be held to a breach of contract standard? And, and my, as I said, my two cases come to uh, opposite conclusions. So the first is Hunt Construction Group versus Cobb Mechanical Contractors, and that's out of the Western District of Texas. The court said that there is uh, that no cause of action for breach of contract existed. This case grew out of the construction of a hotel project on which Liberty Mutual bonded the mechanical sub. Principal defaulted, and Hunt notified Liberty of the default and termination and advised that Hunt intended to arrange for another subcontractor to perform the work. Liberty conducted its investigation and advised Hunt that the bond had been released by Hunt's actions in completing the principal's work. Hunt sued Liberty. Liberty filed a counterclaim against Hunt, alleging, among other things, that Hunt had breached the bond. Hunt moved to dismiss the breach of bond claim, arguing that Texas law did not recognize such a cause of action. The court agreed with Hunt that Texas law did not recognize such a claim and that Hunt owed no duties to Liberty under the bond. The bond was a one-way agreement, as the court put it. The court explained that while certain actions of an obligee may provide the surety with a defense, that's the most that is available. The court stated that Hunt was a beneficiary of the bond, but it took on no affirmative obligations and cannot be liable for a breach. Unfortunately, there was no discussion of the bond form or the terms in the case. And there are many bond forms out there where the obligees do have numerous obligations to the surety, such as to hold a meeting, to satisfy conditions precedent, to pledge the contract balance, um, to not be in default under the contract. And additional obligations can also be included in the bond through the doctrine of incorporation by reference, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So the second case uh, is Travelers Casualty Surety Company of America versus Harlingen Consolidated Independent School District, and that's out of the Southern District of Texas. So in this case, Travelers bonded the general contractor and the school district was the obligee on a project to build a school. The project was deemed substantially complete. However, the school district identified over $2 million in remaining unfinished work. The punch list had not been completed and serious defective work had been discovered. Notwithstanding these circumstances, the school district, without the consent of the surety, released $1.2 million in retainage, leaving only 100000 in retainage left. What could go wrong in that scenario? So thereafter, travelers, of course, had to pay $272,000 in payment bond claims. So travelers contended that the school district had breached the bond by releasing the retainage without its consent. The court found that the, the contract required the school district to obtain the consent of the surety before releasing that retainage, and it did not do that. The court further observed that a public entity obligee may be found liable for a surety's losses on a payment bond where the public entity fails to hold retainage as provided for under the bonded contract. The court stated the duty devolves upon the project owner to administer the contract during the course of its performance in a way that does not materially, materially increase the risk that was assumed by the surety when the contract was bonded. 
This duty arises because in contracts for services that include payment and installments or upon completion, those unearned progress payments and retainage are actually security or collateral ensuring the discharge of the obligations created by the underlying contract. So the court found that the school district's release of the retainage was indeed a material breach and the travelers had a cause of action for breach of the bond. Now, numerous cases have recognized these general principles of surety law, and again, these will be cited in the paper that we'll post on the website. Uh, you can see those there. And so the doctrine of you know, impairment of suretyship began as a defense that a surety could assert to avoid enforcement of its bond obligation on the grounds that the obligee had taken improper actions which prejudiced the surety by increasing its financial risk. One ground for discharge, of course, is when the obligee has prejudiced the surety by improperly overpaying uh, the principal in a manner inconsistent with the project schedules uh, and retainage provisions. Overpayment to the principal prematurely depletes the bonded contract funds to which the surety has a right of equitable subrogation in the event of a default. Thus, by wasting the contract funds in contravention of the, of the contract's terms, the obligee impairs the surety's right of equitable subrogation and increases the risk of loss, and this typically can, will give rise to a discharge of the bond obligation. But over time, the doctrine has evolved to encompass not only a defense, but also an affirmative cause of action that allows a surety to seek damages from an obligee after performing its bond obligation, despite having the impairment of suretyship defense. So the restatement third of surety ships, um, section 37.4, uh, sets forth this um, this right of action that that uh, you that a surety can have if it's if it's been damaged and is out of pocket the money. Uh, when a surety performs, even though it would have had a right to withhold some amount of performance had it um, asserted the pro tanto discharge defense, the surety has effectively overpaid on its bond obligation. In such cases, the surety is harmed. And but for a cause of action to recover the excess amount paid, the obligee would receive a windfall. And so the restatement in some cases have recognized that the surety then has uh, the affirmative right to claim against the bond obligee under the bond. So, you know, the takeaway here is that you might have that cause of action and you need to uh, be aware of it and see if you've got the right circumstances. So we've got a little bit of time, Jason, if you can get a quick one. Um, that you can sure. In. So... The third and final case is out of uh, New York from last August. It's Colonial Surety versus New York Housing uh, out of the Supreme Court. Uh, New York Housing contracted with a company called Pioneer Construction to perform restoration work at a 13-building uh, development owned by the Housing Authority. Uh, it was in Brooklyn. Uh, the contract was about $4 million. Colonial was the surety. The contract required uh, the completion of the work by July of 2014. But about five months earlier, uh, the housing authority declared the principal in default, uh, made a claim upon the surety. The surety hired a completion contractor, a company called Acro uh, Contracting, uh, which timely completed the, the job for about $2 bucks. Um, after receiving final payment, the surety filed a claim with the housing authority um, because the housing authority eliminated roughly half of the contract value uh, from the project. Now, usually a surety will be a static from a reduction in, in, in the contract sum to the extent that it also helps to reduce uh, the cost to complete, but that was not the case here. And actually, it uh, operated in the opposite fashion. It increased the surety's cost to complete. 
So the surety filed a claim after receiving final payment, um, and it sought an equitable adjustment for the increased sums. The obligee re refused, uh, so the surety filed a lawsuit. Uh, the Housing Authority filed uh, a motion to dismiss, and it was actually granted. The Housing Authority argued that the surety's claim was stale because it was filed too late under the terms of the contract, and secondly, that under the terms of the contract, it had to first set aside the termination of def for default before it could seek any affirmative relief. Um, I'll address, I know we're running short on time, um, very quickly. Uh, notice the Housing Authority argued that under the terms of the contract, the contractor and therefore the surety had to submit notice of its claim within 20 days that, the, um, that it had uh, notice of that claim. Here, this, the surety submitted its claim almost a year after it completed the, the, the job. However, the surety argued that the 20 days ran from the date of final payment when it contends that the obligee removed the additional work. The court rejected this. Um, it hold, held in effect that the surety should have known uh, about the claim a year earlier and that its, timely, uh, that its failure to timely submit the notice barred the claim. Um, with respect to the claim for equitable adjustment, the court also agreed with the obligee. The contract stated that if the obligee found the principal to be in default, then that determination precluded the principal from bringing a claim for damages unless the principal, and as I said, the surety, surety was obligated to overturn that default. Um, here, the bond incorporated the terms of the, of the contract, so the surety was bound to obligee under the same, in the same way that the that principles are bound to the obligee. So therefore, to seek that affirmative claim for relief, the surety had to first set aside that termination for default, presumably into a termination for convenience, but it didn't do that. Therefore, the court held it couldn't bring its claim for damages. Um, I think we're out of time. Yeah. Now that in that case was we, we thought we'd talk about that case because I've I've seen it come up a number of times where the you know, the surety gets involved, you get the consultant involved, and everybody kind of forgets about the affirmative claims. And and uh, next thing you know, these short time periods in these contracts, have, have, you know, have expired. So uh, thanks for that, Jason. Before I open up the line for any questions, uh, I want to let every know, everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, May 13th at 1230 Eastern Time. And again, uh, uh, watch for our notices because we're going to have a new 800 number and a new uh, conference code, but you will be able to use your same PIN numbers, so uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, we're going to be joined by, hopefully, by special guests to be named later, uh, and we're going to discuss Pursuing the Project Architect. Um, upcoming events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch will be held on May 15th. The Chicago Surety Claims Association lunch is, is May 16th, and that's followed by the uh, DRI Fidelity and Surety Roundtable which will take place on May 17th in Chicago. So thanks so much for joining us today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Let me unmute the line here. Okay, so if there's any questions, now's yes, your chance. This is Larry Jordner from CNA, and uh, I'm here I'm here with uh, our group here. Um, we were wondering about, I was wondering about the uh, Texas case uh, as far as uh, it's good that the um, obligee still has the duty to uh, protect uh, protect the surety on the payment side uh, by not overpaying funds. Um, 
but I was wondering if uh, state law, this case in particular, state law, has uh, dealt with the issue of uh, whether it's necessary in order to protect that right for the surety to send written notice of their being payment bond claims uh, like like there is under uh, Miller Act law cases. And I'd like your thoughts on that. Right, you're talking about like the Balboa type notice. Uh, yeah, there was nothing nothing discussed in in the case about that. I, I don't know about Texas law from a state law standpoint whether there would be a notice requirement or not. Um, I mean, the federal courts have developed that for for various reasons, and you you could have a state adopt it, but in this case, I couldn't answer the question with respect to Texas law. Um, yeah, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anybody else? Any other questions I cannot really answer? (laughs) All right, everybody, thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you again uh, in May. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.